We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome coaches, players, parents. Welcome to the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass. This is Coach Bo, episode 54. And in this week's episode, we are going to discuss first how the Dodgers used both old school and new school baseball methods to win the 2020 World Series. We're going to break down the different methods that they used. And if they're more of an old school or more of a new school method, we're going to discuss what we can learn from the Dodgers to make our teams better, to make ourselves better coaches. Secondly, we are going to discuss how we can learn from a Hall of Fame football coach and how the majority of coaches don't actually use his mindset and thus prevent themselves from being great coaches. So we're going to break down the mindset of a Hall of Fame football coach. And the third thing we are going to cover in this episode is the well-known J-Band, the Jager Band, and elastic tubing in general when it comes to training. And I will share with you two proven ways that elastic bands, aka the J band is the most popular and probably the most durable out there that I know of elastic tubing. And I'm going to talk about how pitchers can use those to improve their health and their delivery. And I'm going to explain exactly why I disagree with the mainstream baseball community in that I have my players use other implements, other training equipment, not J bands or elastic bands to strengthen their shoulders, their lats, etc. So there's two reasons why I highly recommend using elastic tubing or the J-band. And there's one disagreement that I have with the mainstream, basically the prescribed way that J-bands are prescribed when it comes to strengthening the shoulder, strengthening the pitching arm, the lats, the shoulder girdle and whatnot. And I'm going to explain exactly why using evidence. I wouldn't use it for that. I would actually use it for two other purposes that I think are really, really beneficial. So we'll get to that in part three. Now for part one. The Dodgers, they're my team, but I'm a fan of baseball. And when I use the Dodgers as an example, it has nothing to do with me being a Dodger fan for almost 35 years now or more. It's because they do a very, very, very good job of using new school methods and using old school methods. Now, I think they could use the front office now, the coaching staff now could do a better job of using the old school methods. But I'm going to talk about how the Dodgers organization actually used old school methods and tied them in with new school methods to win the World Series. Series, and I'm going to give you exactly what I'm talking about. Many people that follow the Dodgers or follow baseball, even fans that follow the Dodgers very closely, have no idea that the former general manager, Ned Coletti, the former general manager, Ned Coletti, who I believe stopped being the general manager like in 2014 or 2015. So he has general manager. In fact, he hasn't really been involved with the Dodgers for quite a while. He had a massive impact. Him and his staff, him and his staff, front office staff and coaching staff, especially his front office staff, when it came to drafting and acquiring and signing players played a huge part in their 2020 World Series championship. Now, Ned Coletti was not or is not against new school methods, but he definitely was an old school type of baseball guy. And just to give you a quick little list here, I guess it's not little, but a list of players that Ned Coletti and his staff signed and drafted. Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger, Jock Peterson, Clayton Kershaw, Victor Gonzalez, who played a big role as a bullpen guy, Julio Urias, anybody who watched the World Series knows in the playoffs at all knows who Julio Urias played a massive role 
out of the bullpen, pitched substantial innings. Justin Turner, and also they drafted, Ned Coletti's staff drafted Alex Verdugo, who is technically with the Red Sox now, but was part of the Mookie Betts trade. So, old school baseball guys, an old school baseball front office staff, maybe not as dumb as uh, some of these, a lot of these new school baseball people want to think, right? Maybe not as Neanderthal and outdated, right? Drafted Corey Seager. Yeah, probably had one of the top postseasons of all time. Drafted Cody Bellinger, the reigning MVP from 2019. Although he did struggle this year, but he's still Cody Bellinger. His defense was really good this year. His bat definitely wasn't quite there, but he's an MVP of the entire league. They drafted Jock Peterson and Chalk has done phenomenal phenomenal. Clayton Kershaw, enough said. He finally stepped up and did his thing, but he's always been a stud pitcher. Clayton Kershaw, they drafted Clayton Kershaw as a high schooler. In fact, most of these guys were all drafted as high schoolers. So they went with high school players, big risk, big reward, and they got big rewards. Alex Verdugo, another high school player they drafted, traded for Mookie Betts. Victor Gonzalez, Julio Urias, they signed those guys. Julio Urias was signed from a little pueblo in Mexico, in Mexico, at 16 years old. At 16 years old, they drafted him. So they had the foresight to be able to project. Julio Urias, I think, is like 25 now or 26. I mean, literally project 10 years into the future. They looked at a 16 year old and projected that he was a pitcher that could help them win championships. <laughs> That's incredible. That's awesome. And then they signed Justin Turner. Justin Turner was released by the Mets and they signed him. They signed him to a minor league contract, if I'm not mistaken. So Justin Turner, Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger, Jock Peterson, Clayton Kershaw, Alex Verdugo, Victor Gonzalez, Julio Urias were all signed by the old staff, the old regime of the Dodgers, old school baseball people for the most part. Now, what they did was I believe they signed really quality, good people. They signed quality baseball players, gamers, guys that really just love baseball, like Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger, Jock Peterson, Clayton Kershaw. These are just baseball people. Julio Urias, Justin Turner, Alex Verdugo, Victor Gonzalez. These are just all players that if you watch closely, you would want them on your team. You would want them to play for you because they come out to the field ready to play ball. They want to be out there. They're excited. And from what I know, they're all really good teammates. They're all teammates that are not going to bust up the clubhouse and whatnot. Now, that does lead me to what I think that the old school coaches let slide a little bit more that new school coaches are doing a little bit better of. They're weeding out the bad apples. So Ned Coletti's staff inherited some players that were bad apples, but also brought in some players based on talent and not necessarily on makeup. And that's a big no-no. If you've listened to this podcast at all over the last 54 episodes, you know for me that is a no, that is a non-negotiable, that is a no-go. Player doesn't, if he's not a six, he's not a seven pretty much, or above when it, when it comes to character and hustle and things like that, then it's a, a no-go. You don't want him on your team. doesn't matter if he's a perfect 10 talent, just not worth it. And Ned Coletti had some players like Matt Camp, Yasiel Puig. These are nice guys, but they're just not, they're not always the kind of guys that are going to build a, a really good team culture around. The hustle wasn't quite there. There's a few others I'm not thinking of right now, but they're definitely in. I believe Andrew Friedman, when he came in to the Dodgers, when he came in and took over, he's one of his first things I think he said he was going to do, I, I think you can Google this and look it up in an article where he said, I'm, they were basically trying to move some people and get them out. Not that they were bad people. They just weren't quality teammates or the hustle wasn't there or the drive wasn't there. And so they, they traded them or didn't sign them or sometimes just cut their losses and traded them for not as good of players, but they got them off their off the roster. And so the new staff run by Andrew Friedman, for the most part, and his group have done a really good job of getting those players out. And then they've taken it to another level. They have played the percentages with the math. I think they've done an excellent job. Old school coaches were a little bit more caught up in batting average and stolen bases and some of those elementary stats when you really think about it. So the new school baseball coaches, the new school baseball front offices like the Dodgers have been at the forefront of this using math, playing the percentages. Essentially, Sabermetrics is playing the percentages, getting the best stat you can, getting the best statistic you can to provide
guide and tell you what each player's value is or predict their value or, or their their production and then play the percentages when it comes to strategies. So they've done the math. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are some little things that they've done. The new school, this is something old school coaches and old school baseball organizations did a terrible job of doing. And that is nutrition, nutrition. They tried with the strength and conditioning and I think they stayed relatively current with the strength and conditioning. I think baseball organizations have done a pretty good job of staying current. So if better methods come out in the strength and conditioning community, they've applied those to baseball for the most part. For the most part, I'm generalizing, of course, but in the professional game, I think they've done a good job of drawing and pulling in some of those new, updated, better, more optimal methods of strength training, of conditioning, of things like that. But one thing that they were so slow to implement and improve and move into the baseball world was nutrition and youth coaches, high school coaches, just things like hydration, things like hydration and some simple strategies when it comes to like maybe teaching your players what a, maybe how to make a smoothie and a blender to just up their vitamins, things like that, healthy fats, healthy protein. There's definitely some competitive advantage for players and teams that put a little emphasis on nutrition when it comes to their players. Now, the Dodgers, they essentially just gutted their entire, probably wasn't even anything there as far as their nutrition approach in terms of feeding their players pregame meals, postgame meals, and how they really approach the health and the nutrition of each player. They basically just started over and now they have, this is awesome, the Dodgers have a chef that travels with every single one of their teams, except for like maybe one of their rookie ball teams. Basically every team, obviously their major league team, I wouldn't be surprised if they have two chefs with their major league teams or a staff that rolls in with them, that travels with them, that prepares all the pregame stuff, all the postgame stuff, puts together meal plans and a nutrition plan. I know they got dietitians working with them, but even their minor league teams, their minor league teams. When I played in the minor leagues, we were lucky to get like the non-store brand jelly with our peanut butter and jelly. We were lucky if we got like a name brand peanut butter and jelly. Okay. We were lucky if we got Wonder Bread and not some off bottom shelf discreet brand of bread. So we were lucky if we just got a banana that was semi-yellow and peanut butter and jelly. This is in the 2000s. This isn't in 1980s, 1950s. Okay. And it was shocking. And then we would get 20 bucks and then say, Hey, you're on your way, go get some food. And you look around the hotel and they put you in a Ramada and you look outside and you'd see a, a Domino's and a Waffle House. And those are your options because the game would get done maybe 10 o'clock, 1030. A lot of the normal establishments weren't open. So you had Domino's pizza or Waffle House. And those were a lot of, you know, your staples or a convenience store. So needless to say, very behind the times when it came to nutrition, I think the nutrition had evolved in society enough, not necessarily the general health, but the understanding of nutrition had evolved enough to be able to apply it to professional sports. And that's what the new school baseball players are definitely the front offices are doing. They're putting a lot of that focus and money into coaches, nutrition, strength and conditioning staff. They're doing it very, very well right now. So you can learn from this as coaches. If you can afford as a staff, if you can afford as a team to bring in experts, to bring in experts and work with your team, I highly recommend that. Maybe you have an expert hitting guy or hitting person, gal in your area that can teach the swing very well or a pitching coach that can run a, come in and run a pitching clinic or somebody who can come in and talk sports nutrition and put together a simple plan for your players. If you can say maybe everybody, all the players pitch in 50 bucks or $25 or everybody puts in a hundred dollars and now you're looking at if everybody puts in a hundred dollars, now you may have about 1200 to $1,400, depending on the size of your team to go out and bring in some of these experts and have them talk to your team and kind of get that bulk rate. So that's an option you can definitely do. But as a coach, you can definitely preach things like water, having a banana before the game. Again, these are very basic and not always applicable to all your players, but little suggestions. If you want, you can reach out to me at coachbo at 8020baseball.com. I can share with you. I got a recipe for a pregame smoothie and also a pregame nutrition routine that I think is very beneficial and can be very useful to upping the game and getting better players 
when they get out on the field. So that's really what it's all about is getting healthier players that then can go out there and produce and have better results, get better results on the field. So to sum up what we can learn from the Dodgers, some of the main things that we can learn from how the Dodgers won the 2020 World Series, it was a blend of old school and new school coming together, maybe intentionally, not intentionally. I think there was a residual effect from the old school that blended in with the new school approach that came in. And that was with Ned Galetti drafting baseball players, gamers, it's called in the baseball community. They were they were gamers. They were out there. They wanted, they were eager to get to the park. They were ready to go. They were good attitudes, high character players, high hustle, willing to get dirty type of players. So he drafted these players that he thought were, and there's other reasons why they drafted them, their skills and talents. And they could see they were using kind of the old school scouting scoring system, which proved for this old group of players to be very successful and very accurate and very useful. And then the new school, Andrew Friedman came over from Tampa Bay, his group, and they really just took it to another level with the nutrition, with the technology, the the facilities, using the math to play the percentages, using statistics to better value players that were already in the league, getting guys and also paying that money for quality coaches. The Dodgers have gone out and paid quality coaches to come in and work. So they've went out and they have hired coaches from outside, experts from outside of the baseball, major league baseball community to come in and work with their players. So again, I recommended some of this stuff to all of you that you can use when it comes to nutrition. Maybe you bring in some experts. Again, if each player puts in 50 bucks or each family puts in $50 and that goes towards maybe bringing in experts, however that works out, however you can do that. Now, I know not everybody's in an area where you're going to have a plethora of experts available, but if you are in an area that's densely populated, this is definitely an option and why not? Just look around, maybe be a little slow to bring them in, maybe you know ask some questions up front. They'll just go off of one recommendation. Maybe do a quick little interview with that person, that coach, that person to get a feel for them, to see where they're coming from, to see if they can really add value to your team. But when it comes to nutrition, things like that, and also like math and using statistics, like don't use batting average to gauge your hitters. All right. Now you can use OPS on base plus slugging, although the common denominator is not equal on that. It's still a lot better than using batting average when it comes to assessing the accuracy of your player production, your hitters production and whatnot. Also looking at wins and losses for your pitchers is just not worth it. You want to look at the ERA as a kind of a bare minimum. And there's other stats FIP that if you can do using things like Game Changer, these apps that you can use maybe on an iPad, scorekeeping, things like that, that you can do to more accurately predict the player's production and contribution to the team's win. All right. Hall of Fame football coach. Part two of this episode, we got a Hall of Fame football coach, Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh was a college football coach and then became the football coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He took over the San Francisco 49ers, who were not a very good program, hadn't won very much, and were coming off some bad years and some turmoil. Bill Walsh took them over, and he was a head coach for three Super Bowl victories in the 80s alone. And then he was part of the management of the team for two more. So they won five Super Bowls. And that is really impressive because winning in the NFL consistently is extremely difficult to do with injuries, player turnover. And it's a copycat league. Everything you're doing, all your strategies right there, they everybody can see it, then copy it and they can watch film on it and they can counter it very quickly, which is simply using film. So Bill Walsh is a Hall of Fame football coach. He's since passed away and he was phenomenal at keeping the mindset right. He wrote a book or he 
he was part of writing a book that was titled, and this is my recommendation for you to go read this book or listen to the audio version if it's available. I have the paperback version, although I'm an audiobook fan for the most part. Title of the book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. The Score Takes Care of Itself. And if that doesn't say everything, you probably don't even need to read the book if you really think about that title and mull it over a little bit. The Score Takes Care of Itself. The results will take care of themselves. Work the process. Work the process. Have a process. Have a plan and entrust it. So how can you use this? The title of this book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. Well, before I share with you one of the, the main takeaway that you can all use as coaches that will definitely make you better coaches, will definitely help you be a better coach. Before I get into that one suggestion that we can draw from this book, I want to read a little, little quote from the book. Now, this quote is not related to the paradigm shift that I'm going to recommend from using the title, The Score Takes Care of Itself. But this is a short paragraph from the book. And when I when I read it to you, if you've been following this podcast, you're going to know exactly where I'm going with this. Here we go. Quote, this is Bill Walsh's words. Quote, there's a positive aesthetic to my persona. It's an image that can be misleading because it suggests a professorial soft attitude, a reluctance to bring down the hammer. But inside, I have a hard edge, a willingness to met out punishment, in other words, consequence, and take action that may hurt the feelings of individuals. It doesn't reveal itself often, but it's there. And those within our organization learned to respect it. You will benefit if that same understanding exists within your team. What he's saying is he has a soft, kind front. His persona may come across a little soft and it may even exude a reluctance to bring down the hammer. Like the phrase drop the hammers when you got to lay down the consequence, when you got to drop the hammers, when you got to establish or enforce the rule, not establish, but enforce the rule. Dropping the hammer is following through with the consequence when something is broken. It doesn't mean yelling and screaming like a wild hyena, but it definitely means enforcing your consequences. So we've been talking about this. I'm telling you, you don't have to go out there and yell at all and have a very disciplined team. Maybe you could go a whole season without yelling once and have one of the most, if not the most disciplined teams in the entire area in which you coach. And what I mean by that is if you're kind and you build relationships with players and you build trust with players and respect and you're consistently with them, you're asking them about themselves and you care about them, that's going to show kind of this soft, kind of of nice aesthetic, this persona that Coach Bill Walsh is talking about. But you got to have the hard edge and the hard edge is being able to flip the switch when somebody on the team or the team in its entirety breaks a rule. That hard edge needs to come out and that rule needs to be enforced even if it hurts the feelings of individual players or the team. They got to, as he says, met out the punishment, the consequence. You have to met out the consequence. You have to follow through with that consequence. You definitely don't have to be this general dictator, tyrant, disciplinarian, stern, frowning face. Of course not. That's all fake. That's like fake news. If you can't follow through with the consequence, the players aren't going to, you know, they might not like it. They might, oh, he's yelling a lot. I don't want to yell that, but it's not really moving the needle when it comes to, doesn't move the needle in a true and definite way, in a big way towards getting a better team culture, a more disciplined team, a team that actually listens to you. It comes from, they may not like it a little. So you got to have that little hard edge. Like, ah, you know, you got to be a little hard. All right. You got to be a little hard on that. You can't, you're soft, you're building relationships. It's give and take. You're learning. You're very open and you're showing this friendly side. But when they break the rules, you just enforce the rules. The nice thing about not yelling is then at least you stay consistent with your persona, but you simply have just enforced your rules as you are just kind of going about with your normal persona, your normal characteristics, your normal kind of behavior and demeanor. It doesn't really change much. If you go from really nice, really nice, all friendly, asking them how their day, this, that, and then all of a sudden you start screaming at them when they break a rule, then you're looking like Jekyll and Hyde. And I 
don't think that's as consistent as you want to be as a coach. I think it's important to be as consistent as you can with your tone and your demeanor, friendly, but also sometimes you got to be firm. I recommend that you bring the tone up into a firm, but not necessarily a loud tone, a little louder, but more firm. This is how it's going to be. You're very definite. This is the rule. It's not going to be crossed. This is the rule that we've set forth. It's the better you and the better the team. And this is this is what's going on. And don't get into you know rationalizing it too much with players. Just enforce the rule that you've set forth before the season in started. So that's called having that hard edge. So you definitely can be kind, ask them how they are. But if you look over and that player is not hustling, there's no reason why you can't just enforce the consequence. Say it's a bear crawl, removing some playtime or reducing playtime. And if it gets really bad, hopefully this never comes to it. That would be removing a player from the team. I kind of believe in a four strike rule, especially for youth baseball. And as you get a little older, maybe college baseball and some high school varsity, especially if your program is established as a disciplined program, maybe you can have fewer strikes before a player's removed. But I think that's the last measure I think that you want to do. But eventually you don't want to sacrifice the whole team for one player. And most coaches sacrifice the entire team for one or two players. And that's just no good. That's no bueno. Now for the book, the paradigm. So that was one big thing that we can learn from Bill Walsh. Have a soft persona, but have a hard edge when you need it. The other thing, the paradigm we can get from this book, the score takes care of itself. Coaches, when you're coaching the game, when you're out there, don't look at the scoreboard as much as you are. If you're one of those scoreboard watchers, constantly looking at the score to judge the score. Hey, we're trailing by four. We're, you know, we're down, we're up four, we're up one. Hey, it's a close game. Hey, it's a big lead. We're talking about the lead and this. You can talk about that a little bit, but it shouldn't definitely be on the back back burner of what's going on in your player should just be thinking about winning each pitch, winning each pitch, not necessarily the scoreboard. You can strategize as a coach to help your team win by using the score to strategize a little bit. But for the most part, you shouldn't change the way your team plays when you're down one, up one, down five, up five, whatnot. Your players should have the same approach to the game. They should be out there trying to win each pitch. The score will take care of itself. Win each pitch, win each at bat, and the score will take care of itself. The score is a result. The score is a result. It's not an action. It's a culmination of a lot of things that have gone into it. Let's focus on those things that have gone into it. The inputs, the quality at bats, commanding the pitches from the pitching mound, commanding our pitches, being disciplined at the plate, not chasing bad pitches, setting up defensive drills in practice that force the players, the position players, the infielders, the outfielders, the catchers to play hard, play fast, and challenge them to play better. So when the game comes around, they are ready to field any ground ball and make any throw, and outfielders are ready to make any catch and make any throw, and they know what to do. And when it comes to base running, you develop during practice with good quality drills and a good quality environment, players that are instinctive, that can get good jumps, are ready, they're aggressive, but disciplined. And then when the game comes around, the score will take care of itself because you've already put all the inputs in. There are little touch-ups you can do during the game, little motivational stuff during the game. But remember, it's not about pep talks and all that. It's about training. The players are going to drop to the level of their training, not necessarily rise to the occasion or rise to your message or your pep talk or your screaming and hollering. They are going to play at the level of their training more often than not. So the score takes care of itself. It's a really well-known book by Bill Walsh, Hall of Fame coach, 49ers, San Francisco 49ers. And I think that's somebody that we can all learn from as coaches. Go check out that book if you get a chance. And we are now moving on to part three of episode 54. Part three, the J-band, elastic tubing. Elastic tubing, the J-band have been around baseball training circles. They've been out on baseball fields for a long time. I love the J-bands for stretching. I love them as a tool to help players 
especially pitchers and throwers and stretching the throwing arm. Definitely a big fan of using those out there on the field to stretch and create better mobility and durability and flexibility in the throwing arm, especially whether that's stretching the lats and moving them through a range of motion as you're stretched out. Another one is external rotation, internal rotation. These J-bands, elastic tubing are great for stretching. They can really manipulate the arm and do a lot of a variety of ways and a variety of movements that I think is can create an athletic and more mobile and durable arm if used correctly. In other words, you would want to kind of warm up the intensity and move through a progressive stretching program with the elastic tubing, with the J-bands. Love them for stretching. The other thing I love them for, which this came up probably 14 years ago when I was working with a pitcher. This pitcher had terrible glove side control, front side arm control. Anybody who's coached baseball or been around baseball, seen pitchers like this, that front side would fly open, the glove would kind of swing. He would kind of try to throw his pitching arm and power his pitching arm by yanking on his glove side arm. And so we tried a bunch of different things and we couldn't come to a, a solution. We couldn't seem to improve that control. It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. This glove would just be yanking and cranking all over the place and really kind of wreaking havoc on his release point And I think on his long-term health, pitching arm health. But what we did, what we came up with is we had him hold the J-band. So we had to strap it to the fence. And if you want, reach out to me. I can send you a video of this. He would reach out. He would stretch out the band. He would have it hooked to the fence, he'd have it around his glove or just on his glove hand. Maybe he took his glove off and just held the band with his glove hand. And then he would throw to a target, usually like a little piece of duct tape that I would have taped on the fence. He would throw into the fence a bucket of baseball, not the full bucket, but about 20 to 25 baseballs before he actually went on the mound. And what it did was by stretching the elastic tubing out and then using that to hold the front side, the glove kind of where it's at. It moved a little. You could kind of swivel that front side a little bit. That glove would move just naturally enough to like where you could throw the ball with quality of a quality front side kind of blocked off front side but it would definitely not let him yank it down or back behind him or way off to the side now some pitchers get away with that i know degrom does it a little bit and some pitchers do get away with it but it's not the the default setting you want to have with your pitchers some are going to do it more than others and it's not always going to be perfect but using the j-band as kind of an implement to keep your glove side your glove arm your glove hand from swinging way outside or way down or way behind the pitcher as he's making a pitch very beneficial very beneficial now you can't use it while you're throwing to a catcher necessarily, although if you worked it right, you might be able to find a way to do it using like, say, a L screen and whatnot, which would be ideal. But what it does is it trains the mind and the muscle memory and all that stuff. And I know people say, well, muscle memory isn't really true, but I'll tell you what, when you rep things, good quality reps, it does prove that you're going to make better reps and produce better reps thereafter. So have them do that. It's a great way to you know work on that front side glove control. And it's a something I've, I have never seen anybody do, but I'll tell you what, the pitchers I've worked with it, it's a great, great, great tool because it has some give, but it's elastic. So it has some give, but it has tension. So you can manipulate it and move your front side, your glove. You can move your glove arm a little bit and you can kind of bring it in a little bit to your chest and kind of move it out of the way as your throwing arm comes through, but you can't move it very far. Typically I get it to where they can only move it about one foot to 18 inches. And that's usually enough to get it to a good spot upon a release. Now I do have a big disagreement. I should say a big disagreement, but I definitely have a disagreement with how J bands are generally prescribed. And that's for shoulder strength and arm strength. I don't use these with my pitchers for arm strength. I use them for stretching and I use them for front side glove control for pitchers, but I do not use them for arm strength because I think they are an inferior implement, an inferior piece of equipment to other options such as plyo balls, fitness balls. I prefer two to four to eight pound plyo balls, even one pound plyo balls, depending on the size of the strength of the kid or the player. But I'm a big fan of using plyo balls and fitness balls for a shoulder strength and lat strength. Here's why. And there's no arguing 
the evidence on this one. The evidence, the fact is elastic tubing does not have consistent resistance. It does not have consistent resistance throughout the pool. Elastic tubing generates resistance by pulling, whether you're pulling it up from the ground or out from a fence, it creates resistance as you pull it further away from the other end. So if you strap it to the, if you hook it to the fence and you're pulling it away, you're pulling the J band or the elastic tubing away with your arm, you're working some shoulder exercise, the further away you get, the higher the resistance becomes, the higher the intensity of the resistance, the resistance load becomes higher and higher. It's a greater resistance as you get further away. Now, the problem with this is the muscles that you're using at the beginning of the pool are just as important as the muscles at the end of the pool. And the muscles at the beginning of the pool, beginning of that exercise, the beginning of that movement are basically not even really doing anything because the, the, the resistance in the tubing hasn't really gained in. There's no resistance right away. It's like very little resistance. And as you get by halfway through your pool, you can start to feel that resistance. And then as you get to the end of the pool or whatever you're doing, as far as pulling or manipulating that tubing away from where it's hooked to, then you start to feel it really, 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 really strongly. As you can see, the inconsistency in resistance is what I do not think makes sense for athletes in general at all. I'm not a fan of inconsistent resistance. Now, some of you might say, well, when you're bench pressing, there's going to be a little more resistance at the bottom. Yeah, but that's because the body structure, that's not a, an artificial resistant manipulation. That's your body may be stronger at one point of the pushup than another point of the pushup, or maybe stronger the top half of the squat versus the bottom half of the squat. And I'm not saying that's true, but it, it does sometimes happen with certain athletes, but that's a movement thing with, that's a body issue, not an equipment issue. And I do not believe that you should be using equipment to strengthen your body that has different resistance levels within the same movement. Now, some of you guys might say, well, when I go to the gym and I do squats, I don't always do 300 pound squats. I start with 150 pounds and then I work up and I pyramid it or I drop set it. You do different things and that makes sense. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is as you're pulling through, you're actually not strengthening parts of the arm as much as you are other parts of the arm or whatever you're strengthening with that elastic tubing. Trust me on this. Trust me on this. Logically, if you deduce, if you're using just basic logic when it comes to exercise physiology and range of motion and resistance principles, this is not the best way of going about it. In fact, I recommend doing everything that you can or prescribe for the most part with a J-band or elastic tubing. I recommend you, like I said, using a one pound, two pound, four pound, eight pound, six pound, depending on the player, depending on how old they are, how strong they are and how prepared they are. I would prefer you do your strengthening with that. And then also other things like pull-ups and things that you can do at the gym, back rows. There's a lot of inverted back rows. There's a lot of great strengthening exercises for the shoulders that don't even, that take place in the gym or in a garage workout facility. But I'm just talking about out on the field. I'd rather you have plyo balls and do things such as arm circles. And there's a lot of other types of manipulation you can do, external rotation bounces, things like that, that will definitely get the arm stronger, but also apply the same resistance because that two pound, let's say you're using a two pound resistance ball and you're using a two pound plyo ball, a two pound plyo ball with two pounds of resistance. That two pounds of resistance is going to be two pounds all the way through the workout, all the way through the exercise, I should say, not the workout, but the exercise. It will be through the entire movement. That two pounds will be two pounds. Now there are certain parts of the exercise that are going to be a little more, let's say strenuous. There's going to be a little more resistance because of just how the body moves, right? There might be like a sticking points per se. So to sum it all up, the baseball community, the mainstream baseball community has, I don't think anybody's ever sat back and questioned this. Now I have an exercise background, a kinesiology degree, and I've used J bands forever and ever. So I've had many uses with them. I've tested them out many different ways and I've tested them with tons of different players. And I, like I said, I have a, a background in this exercise physiology stuff. And I'll tell you right now, I do not agree with this. I feel like it's just 
just a, an echo chamber of it's just been pushed along without actually scrutinized. So I think it's important that new school coaches that are talking about the J band, I think it's important that they better not say, hey, well, that's a you can't defend an old school thing you've done or an old school thing that's just been passed around and then disclaim or just invalidate all the other things you think are old school. You got to be consistent here. In my opinion, this is something that needs to evolve where the elastic tubing is phenomenal for stretching. It's phenomenal for in particular, the front side glove control of pitchers. There may be things that hitters can use it for. I'm sure there are, but I do not agree with using it as the primary choice for equipment or the primary implement or tool when it comes to strengthening the shoulder. And when it comes to strengthening the lats, the upper back, the shoulder girdle, the, the chest area that gets a little bit, I just don't agree with using something that has a variety of a massive swing and resistance levels from no resistance to max resistance within the same movement, within the same pull or whatnot. Now, to just sum it up, if you don't believe me now, I'm just going to give you an example and this will just prove the point wholeheartedly. If you really listen to it and you're not a contrarian by nature, first off, if you're just contrarian by nature, if you're just contrarian to be contrarian just for contrarian sake, this is not the podcast for you. In fact, I just prefer you go somewhere else because what I'm looking for is people that do question things, people that are not naive, but are also open-minded and look at things logically and deduce things. So here's an example of why, and this is going to give you a hypothetical example, but a, a real true kind of example we can deduce from. Would you, if you're bench pressing, and many of you are familiar with bench pressing, I'm not saying you bench press. I don't bench press. I do push-ups, but I know a lot of people bench press and or are familiar with the bench press and have experience with it. Let me ask you this. Would you start your bench press at the bottom? So you take the bar off. It's got no weight on, no weight on the bar, no weight on the bar, no plates on there. You have it down at your chest. All right. So it's resting against your chest all the way down. Would you then, as you lift every two to three inches, would you then have people add weight to it? Would you have them add a 45 pound plate to each side, a 25 pound plate? And then when you go another three or four inches, would you have them add another plate? And as you get three quarters of the way done, would you have them add another plate? And then as you get to the very top, would you have them max out whatever your max is? Maybe your bench press max is 200 pounds. Would you then have 200 pounds added at the very top? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. When you do a bench press rep, whatever's on the bar, say it's 150 pounds. It's 150 pounds from the initial push, the initial press all the way to the top. And the same thing goes for a pull. If you're doing a pull up, if you're doing a pull up, you don't lift part of your body weight the first half. You don't lift a little bit of your body weight at the beginning. You lift all of your body weight at the beginning. And when you get to the very top of the pull-up all the way to the bar, you're trying to get your chin over that bar, you're still lifting all of your body weight. But if you're using elastic bands, if elastic bands were your pull-up, in other words, if you were doing pull-ups in the same way that we keep telling players to go out and use elastic tubing to strengthen their arms, we would be telling people in the gym, if you're going to stay consistent, if you're staying consistent across the board here without deviating and being consistent with your rationale and your logic, you would then tell people, you would then tell your athletes to go do a pull-up but at the very beginning of the pull-up, you would have somebody hold most of their body weight, right? And then as they got a little further up, they would hold a little less, they would push, you would have a little less help. And as they got about halfway, they'd have about half the help. And then as they got all the way to the top, then they would be on their own. No, when they're doing pull-ups, you pretty much want them on their own from the get-go, unless they just can't do a pull-up. But anybody who can do one pull-up, you're not going to do it where then you, now, some of you may say, well, at the end of a workout or an exercise, or definitely of a, of a round of exercises, you may drop down, you may drop set. And I talked about this, you may drop set, but that's different. Drop setting is not the same. And if you want to go look up a drop setting is I highly recommend drop setting when it comes to working out, even for personal workouts for adults, but this is not the same. You're not drop setting because you're doing it within the same rep. You're actually up setting, not drop setting. You're actually up setting in the middle of a rep. And I'm not a fan of that. I think you get unequal muscle strength. I think you get unequal, you get inconsistent muscle strength throughout the muscle, throughout that movement. It's just natural, right? If the end of the movement, the muscles at the end of the 
the movement are at full resistance and the muscles that were used and the parts of the muscles that were used at the beginning of said movement were barely being used or went through very little resistance, they're not going to develop and grow. Resistance generates and builds muscle. Resistance, I mean, obviously there's protein and nutrients and things like that and rest, but resistance is what builds the muscle strength up. So if you have very limited resistance at the beginning, and I'm not going to belabor this point anymore because either you believe it or you don't, but I'm telling you, this is just how it is. This isn't my opinion. This is just how the physiology works. This is just how it works. And I think for 20 years, we've just been told, use it for this, use it for that, use it for this. And nobody sat down and go, hey, maybe this isn't the right way, right? Maybe this isn't the best way. And maybe X player or Y player or Z player would have won the Cy Young whether he used this tool or didn't use this tool. This just made, I call it in spite of this. They won or they were great in spite of something. You know, not everything that Trevor Bauer does has added to his Cy Young season. Not everything Clayton Kershaw does makes him a better player. In fact, some of the stuff he probably does in his training actually reduces his ability to produce out on the field. That's just how it works. It's not like, well, he uses elastic tubing and he won the Cy Young. So elastic tubing used like that is the reason he won the Cy Young. That's extremely flawed thinking because you're leaving out a massive amount of variables and then you're attributing success to variables without really quantifying how each variable played in to the production and the results. So with that said, I love the elastic tubing, the J-band. I'd have every player should have it, especially every pitcher, but I wouldn't use it for strength. The strength part, I would use plyo balls or I like the balls. You can use dumbbells, but I like just having like the plyo balls. You can buy some online, two pound, four pound. I know some of these companies like Driveline sell them also, but you can buy them on Amazon or walmart.com. And I would have every player have those, maybe get them specific to the age group. If it's younger, not as strong players, maybe two pounds, high school players, maybe four to six pounds, depending on the strength and the build of the player. Every player in high school might know is going to vary a little bit there, but I would have them have a band plus plyo balls and maybe a couple different weights of plyo balls that they use not to throw necessarily, although you can throw the plyo balls, which is very common these days, but you can use them for strengthening things like arm circles are a massive benefit. I think arm circles in a lot of different ways are awesome. And there's a lot of different exercises you can do with that. You can reach out to me at Coach Bo at 8020 Baseball. We can talk more about those exercises. Also follow me on Twitter at 8020 underscore baseball, 8020 underscore baseball. And if you wouldn't mind, leave a review, please. Just a quick review, you know, a rating for this. This just helps out the podcast. And I do this. I don't have commercials on here on purpose for you guys. I'm trying to give you a lot in a short amount of time. So there's no commercials and I don't plan on doing any commercials on this. I have the option to put those on here. I'm going to leave them off for right now. Also, you can donate to the podcast even more simple. You can just go on and donate. There's a link on the show notes. There's a link right below in the show notes for this podcast right there on your phone that you're listening to or your computer. There's a link there and it probably wouldn't take you more than 60 seconds to donate to the podcast to keep it rolling. I do have an editor. I've paid Donald to do the intros and outros and obviously the time that I put into this to give you guys the baseball community. I love doing this. I love doing this, but it does take time away from my family and I do pay my editor, Sam, and he does an excellent job of editing this and trying to get it down to a very condensed, awesome, clean version for you. With that said, I will see you all back here on episode 55 next Tuesday. And in the meantime, take care of your health. Please take care of your health. I think that's so important to be strong with your health, get your rest, take care of your families and go out, use this information and use your positivity to make the baseball community, the youth baseball community, the professional, the college, whatever you're at, make that community, make that team, make that environment a better place. Make it a place where players get better and players become better people. All right, until next time, you guys take care. Bye. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 